And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Monday, July 3rd, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, and our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, how the Veterans Benefits Administration is coping with PACT Act claims. Plus, the FDA ponders whether artificial intelligence can help with drug approval. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, thousands of federal employees are a step closer to a somewhat bigger pay raise in 2024. That's after the Office of Personnel Management outlined plans to establish four new locality pay areas in the coming months. OPM's proposed rule also included plenty of other pay recommendations from the Federal Salary Council. Here to break it all down, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And some of these locality pay areas are a little bit of a head-scratcher. Tell us where they are. Tom, the four new locality pay areas that we will see if, if this proposal is approved are Fresno, California, Reno, Nevada, Rochester, New York, and Spokane, Washington. And each of those includes a couple other counties as well within them to kind of put that all together. All of those four areas that would be the new locality pay areas are currently part of the rest of U.S. locality pay area. And if once these changes are implemented, it would impact about 16,000 federal employees across all of those four regions combined. OPM is planning to implement the changes in time for those federal employees to see the changes reflected in their first paychecks of 2024. All right. And just for clarification for those that might be new to this, this is where the federal office is or where their residences are? It's based on where the federal office is. Right. So if you live in high rent area but work in some schlubby place, you're not getting the locality pay. Right. And we're not, you know, I'm not sure exactly how often it happens that you have that difference, but it is technically based on the office location. Yeah, I just thought we would establish that since we talk about this every year. And fundamentally, the government has it so that people that are in working in high cost areas are compensated for conditions beyond their control. That's the basis for this, correct? Right. And contrary to popular belief, it's actually not based on cost of living, but locality pay is actually calculated based on the wages that private sector employees in a given region make. So if you have similar types of positions between federal sector and private sector, the locality pay adjustments are basically meant to bring federal employees' wages up to to be more similar to those in the private sector. Right. So it's a derivative of the cost of living because the presumption is that higher pay for private sector has something to do with where it is. You're going to make more as a barista in Manhattan than you are maybe in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. I don't know. I haven't looked at Starbucks pay lately. (laughs) But the process for creating these OPM proposes, but they don't dispose, correct? Right. There is a long process to kind of develop new locality pay areas. The OPM proposed rules are a later step in that process. So initially where this started was with the Federal Salary Council, which is a council that's composed of labor relations and uh, federal pay experts, and they basically issue an annual report with their recommendations for, you know, what they think should be a locality pay area, if there should be any new ones, if there should be any counties added to existing ones, any other changes related to federal pay for the general schedule. Those recommendations from that annual report then get sent to a panel, which is called the President's Pay Agent. That's a three-person panel with the Office of Management and Budget Director, 
the director of the Office of Personnel Management and the Labor Department secretary. And those three people then issue another report where they either approve or deny the recommendations from the Federal Salary Council. Then that's where we see OPM come in. The president's pay agent approved recommendations go to OPM. They determine how to then implement those changes. Right. So there is a little bit of a circular thing going on here because OPM proposes, then OPM votes, at least one third of the vote. And given this administration and Labor Department, I think we know how this one's going to go. The other thing we want to ask, too, is of the proposed pay raise that comes each year from the pay agent or what the president implements, because Congress never seems to quite exactly vote on it. Sometimes they do. A portion of that pay only is the locality pay. It's not the big part of the raise, is it? That's right. And, you know, it's not exactly set in statute for what the base pay versus locality pay should be. But typically what we see is the locality pay is 0.5%, so half a percent of the overall uh, average federal pay raise. So, for example, in 2023, federal employees got a, an average 4.6% federal pay raise. That was a 4.1% base pay raise that every federal employee got across the country, no matter what. And the 0.5% locality pay part is actually an average, so federal employees might see slightly above the total 4.6% depending on where they live. Right. So if you live in a non-locality pay area, you just get the 4.5%. You don't get the 0.5%. And of the 0.5%, that varies how much you get of that depending on the flavor of your locality. Right. So there are some pay locality areas that are a lot higher. So for example, the D.C. area is going to be one that's where you see a lot higher salaries and therefore a higher locality pay area some more rural areas across the country where federal employees are working, you're going to see that percentage be a little bit lower. Interesting. All right. And we mentioned at the top there are some other recommendations that OPM included in the rule for the locality pay. What else can feds expect to see in the coming year or hope for, let's say? Maybe they can't expect it just yet. They can hope for it. Nothing is quite set in stone yet, Tom. So this is all we'll just see kind of how everything plays out. But on top of the four new locality pay areas that OPM is planning to implement, they're also planning to expand already existing locality pay areas. And there are three that are on the docket for that. So we have the Dukes and Nantucket counties that will be added to the Boston locality in Massachusetts. You have Huron County, Michigan being added to the Detroit pay locality, and then the Pacific and San Juan counties in Washington being added to the Seattle locality. So all of those they're basically going to see their pay, the employees working in those specific counties, go up potentially a little bit next year as well. And then there's also a broader change to the way that we're kind of mapping out locality pay areas that OPM is planning to implement. Basically, the Office of Management and Budget recently updated its definitions of what are called metropolitan statistical areas and combined statistical areas which can alter the way the map is laid out for locality pay areas. It's a little bit complicated, but what federal employees should know about this is that it means there could be dozens of different jurisdictions or regions across the country that may be rearranged to different locality pay areas in the near future. But OPM importantly noted that no one would be moved to a lower paying area 
as a result of this. Yeah, it's definitely a one-way train. And, you know, at first glance, you look at a place like Nantucket and you think, why would that be a locality pay? Who is there? But when you think about it, there could be several federal employees on a place like Nantucket. You could have the National Park Service. I don't know this for a fact, but I'm guessing probably maybe Coast Guard. There could be a few people there from the Coast Guard, civilians. Also, you know, the uh, Social Security Administration has offices in obscure but high pay. I don't not saying Nantucket's obscure. It's obscure to me. I'm a Martha's Vineyard guy. But, you know, the idea that feds are pretty much everywhere and some of these places are quite expensive. I mean, Nantucket, you and I couldn't swing a house there, I don't think, from what I've seen when I'm looking on Zillow. Where... <laughs> right. And I think the important takeaway, I, I can't say for sure either who exactly is working in each of these areas or how many exact people are in each of the counties. But I do know that just under 17,000 federal employees as a result of those changes are going to actually be getting their locality pay changed. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thank you. Check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the FDA ponders whether artificial intelligence can help with drug approval. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Artificial intelligence seems to be overturning every part of life. How about this one? AI and its country cousin machine learning in the development of new drugs. For how AI can help and some of the risks, we turn to the Food and Drug Administration's Associate Director for Policy Analysis, and that's within the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research, Dr. Tala Fekuri. Dr. Fekuri, good to have you with us. Thank you for having me. And I imagine this is something of great interest to CEDAR, where you work in FDA and FDA writ large. I imagine the drug companies, the manufacturers and developers, they've got to be looking at AI. Fair to say? That is fair to say. In fact, we've received over 175 submissions for drug approval that included the use of AI and machine learning in drug development. And the uses really traverse the spectrum of drug development from drug discovery all the way to clinical research, to manufacturing, and to post-market safety surveillance. Yeah, that was really my next question. Where in the life cycle of a drug does all this apply? Because at the development stage, it's really they develop new molecules, essentially. How could AI help in that stage? Let's concentrate there for a moment. Right. So artificial intelligence and machine learning, for example, can be used to predict how specific proteins will will fold or to predict certain targets for molecules that are already on the market or to discover new uses for existing molecules. This is something that we call drug repurposing. These uses are very exciting and we think they may contribute to the development of safer drugs faster. However, a lot of the application of AI in that early phase of drug discovery is outside of what FDA regulates, but we still see submissions that will include information about the use of AI in that early stage of drug development. And do the same worries apply for AI development here as apply to everywhere else? And that is, did they use sufficient and correct data such that the output is reliable? Will that molecule do what they hope it will do. Is that, that the case? I mean, you worry about the data and the, and the algorithms. One way that we evaluate the use of AI and machine learning and drug development, let's say we got an application with AI being used in clinical research to predict outcomes for patients, 
predict how they'll respond to a treatment, for example. The way that we would review this application would take into consideration the benefits and the risk of using this technology. Specifically, we emphasize the ethical use of AI. We emphasize issues related to transparency. We need to know, for example, the data that was used to develop these models. Is that data high quality data? Does it address issues related to bias, which may then lead to bias in the algorithm itself? We also look at the model's performance to make sure that it is predicting or it's performing in a way that is consistent with how the sponsor or the specific researcher had intended it to do. Got it. And let's move on to the topic of how AI could apply to the clinical testing, because that's in some ways one of the longest parts of drug development. You might be able to come up with the new drug in six months, but then you've got to spend five years testing it. And that could be really controversial, I imagine, because tests take as long as they take and developments of after effects or cures take as long as they take. Can AI speed that up in a way that you can rely on it? Am I asking the right question? You are asking the right question. AI can be used in clinical research. In fact, for us on the FDA side, the majority of AI uses in drug submissions are in the clinical research part of the spectrum. AI can be used for outcome prediction. This is one of the strengths of AI and machine learning is its predictive power. So it can take information about the patient, for example, about their lab values, their demographics, and predict how they would respond to a specific drug and if they will respond to a specific dose. This is wonderful because you could do things like dose optimization using this technology and it's pretty fast. So we do expect it to expedite certain aspects of clinical research. We also know that AI, for example, is used for something that we call patient selection and stratification. Finding the patients that would be able to respond to the drug is very important. AI can be used to be able to do that. There's also new applications of AI that are very interesting to the FDA. For example, the creation of something known as a digital twin. So, for example, you would have a single arm trial where everyone is taking the treatment, and then you would simulate what would happen to the specific patient had they not taken the placebo. So this is another application that we expect to see. We're speaking with Dr. Tala Fekouri. She is Associate Director for Policy Analysis at the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research in the Food and Drug Administration. And for the FDA, what is it that you need in the FDA to be able to keep up with this? You hinted earlier that there might be an extension of regulatory oversight that you would need, and would that have to come from Congress, for example? For us on the FDA side, specifically for CEDAR, the evidentiary standards needed to support drug approval remain the same, regardless of the technology that you're using. It's very important to emphasize that, that the paradigm that we currently use has not changed. We are actively monitoring advances in AI machine learning, and we continuously engage with experts, whether through expert workshops or recently in May, we published two papers, two discussion papers, one focusing on the entire drug development landscape and the other one more specifically targeting the use of AI in drug manufacturing. In that document, in both documents, we raise questions to help engage with the community, with stakeholders, and we hope to receive a lot of good feedback. 
the purpose of these discussion papers is really to be able to understand if there are areas or gaps where additional regulatory clarity is needed. But I can tell you as of now, with the 175 submissions that we've received, our evidentiary standards are the same. The paradigm that we're using has not changed because there isn't a need to provide additional clarity as of now. But it sounds like you have the potential maybe for some additional rulemaking based on what these submissions say and where those gaps might be. So after we receive the comments on the docket for the two discussion papers, we plan to carefully and thoughtfully analyze all of the feedback that we've received. We plan to conduct public workshops next year to be able to address needs for the community in terms of additional regulatory clarities. And if there is a need to provide future guidance, of course, we'll be happy to do that uh, because we want to make sure that this technology is used in a responsible way and used to develop new, safe, effective medications for the public. And what about the requirements that FDA would have in terms of your own people and their knowledge to keep up with developments in AI and algorithms and how this is all being used? Because there's many forms of AI, many sources of AI, and they've got to keep up with that no less than the drug industry. Right. So internally within the FDA, within CEDAR, we are conducting a lot of work internally to be able to bolster our workforce, right? Make sure that folks are trained in the use of these technologies. You can take classes, you can attend seminars, but also in terms of hiring, hiring experts that could help us better understand the use of this technology in practice. A final question with AI, do you anticipate just from your general sense of what's going on in the world that this has the potential to lower the cost of drug development and deployment? I mean, the ideal world, you know, that latest cancer drug would cost as much as an aspirin or as little as an aspirin. Probably that's unlikely. Could this drive cost out of the entire life cycle here, do you think? Costing of drugs is outside of the domain of what I work on within the agency, but one can expect that if you have drugs being developed faster, this may may reduce costs on all ends. All right, let's hope so. Dr. Tala Fekori is Associate Director for Policy Analysis at the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research at the FDA. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, Congress is gone until next week, but the budget questions drone on. But first, how the Veterans Benefits Administration is coping with PACT Act claims. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. The PACT Act, which became law in 2022, aims to help veterans who are exposed to toxins. It sparked more than 625,000 new claims as of June 3rd. For how the agency is coping with this caseload, we turn to the Veterans Affairs Undersecretary for Benefits, Josh Jacobs. Josh, good to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. And give us a sense, first of all, of who is handling these 625,000 claims. Is it the regular adjudication staff that was in place, or did you have to staff up for this? We've been actively increasing our staffing well before the PACT Act was enacted. In fact, prior to passage of the PACT Act in August of 2022, we started a 2,000-person hiring campaign. And we've increased our total workforce in VBA 
by about 20% over the last 18 months. And for the first time in our history, we're now at over 30,000 employees. And the people who are doing the, the work are the, the claims processors, what we call the VSRs and the RVSRs, who are helping develop the evidence and rate the cases. Just incredible employees and a very talented and hardworking workforce. Yeah, so they're roughly equivalent to, say, administrative judges in other agencies. It's uh, slightly different. We have administrative judges that do work in the Board of Veterans' Appeals. These are our claims processors. Got it. And they do hard work of identifying evidence in the military record and in health records and working to make sure that we can make timely and accurate decisions for the veterans who've earned these benefits. Yeah, they must be very patient people to try to find out things from military records. And is there a dedicated staff for the PACT Act, or is everything blended into one big giant group of processors? Our entire claims processing staff across the country is working PACT claims. We've actually received close to 680,000 PACT claims since the law was enacted And we've processed more than 300,000 of those claims, and we've been able to approve about 80% of claims that have a packed contention. So what we're finding is that the claims we're receiving are taking up an increasing amount of the total inventory. About 45 to 50% of the total pending claims we have have at least one claim with a packed contention. So there could be claims with multiple contentions then? Correct. We receive claims that receive anywhere, you know, it ranges. You can have some claims that have 10 to 20 different specific health conditions, and then there are going to be some with only a handful. Dealing with veterans that go back to the Vietnam, I I guess there are people from that era, the Vietnam era, that are coming in under the PACT Act. That would be a good example of people that might have multiple because there's still the Agent Orange that you're working through Mm -hmm. from several years ago, and now the PACT Act. Fair to say? Absolutely. One of the best things about the PACT Act is that it's expanding our ability to deliver benefits and health care to veterans who we haven't been able to serve in decades. And so in the case of Vietnam veterans, we are now able to provide benefits to veterans who served in Vietnam or one of the other covered uh, country locations who have hypertension. As you can imagine, there are a fair number of veterans uh, of that age who have hypertension. And so we're able, for the first time ever, provide benefits to those veterans. And so many of them may already be receiving other VA benefits for other service-connected conditions, but for the first time are now coming in and being approved for hypertension. We're speaking with Josh Jacobs. He's the Undersecretary for Benefits at the Veterans Affairs Department. What kind of training is required for any claims processor, but the PACT Act, I mean, these laws, when you read them, they're pretty complicated, and there's lots of codicils and where here two fours in them. I imagine there's a pretty good training that's required. Absolutely. And particularly given the number of new employees that we're bringing on board, we have a robust training for new employees that starts at their local regional office. It continues with our centralized training for all new employees. And then it follows them as they return back from that training to their regional office. It can take up to two years for a new employee to be fully proficient in processing claims. And for those employees who are more experienced, we have regular ongoing training. You can imagine the laws change, the policy changes, and so we need to make sure that our employees have the information, the resources that they need to keep up with all of those changes and to deliver timely and accurate decisions for the veterans that we're privileged to serve. 
and do you feel that they are backed by a pretty decent case management system, an online way that they can make sure they can rapidly retrieve a veteran's records if they call back, this type of thing? Absolutely. You know, if you had asked me that question 10 years ago, I would say maybe not. But this is an organization that transformed from a paper-bound process where the floors were literally buckling under the weight of all the paper that constituted the claims process to an organization that is now primarily electronic. And so we have a system called the Veterans Benefits Management System that enables us to process claims and distribute it more efficiently. And we're adding to that by creating new automated decision support tools that provide our employees with greater access to efficiencies that make their job easier. And so we're in the early stages of that, but we're continuing to modernize and improve our technology. And what has the PACT Act done to the backlogs? Well, you know, the great thing about the PACT Act is that it's enabling us to serve millions more veterans. And as anticipated, we're seeing an increase in the number of claims. We've received almost 700,000. We have anticipated the growth in demand. We've been able to hire up. And thanks to that early hiring and training, as well as the process improvements in technology, we're delivering more benefits to more veterans than at any other time in our history. But the inventory is increasing. The uh, backlog is increasing, and as we've projected from the very beginning, we anticipate it'll increase over the next year or so before we're able to bring it down to a healthy, steady state. What is your metric for turning around a given claim, and how close are you coming to that on average so far? So we define a claim to be in the backlog if it takes more than 125 days. And right now, our average days to complete is slightly longer than that. But we want to make sure as we pursue timely decisions, we're also making the right decision the first time. So in some cases, it may require us more time to identify and and develop the evidence that's required to deliver an accurate decision. So we don't want to sacrifice quality for speed, and there's always going to be that tension. The other thing I would say is uh, we made a decision to start processing PACT Act claims on January 1st, even though the law was passed in August. And that was the right decision because we had to develop sub-regulatory guidance that provided policy. We didn't wait 18 to 24 months for regulations. We had to develop the training. But it did enable us, it it did allow us to to start processing those claims uh, as early as possible. But there were a cohort of claims that we simply had to wait. And so that has also distorted the total uh, average processing time. Is there a way to, I guess, maybe for lack of a better word, triage the claims that are coming in? I mean, a lot of the cases, especially with the PACT Act, have to do with respiration of a individual. And if someone says, look, I'm five days away from being on a ventilator versus someone that says, well, you know, my five-mile time has fallen 20%, there's a big difference there. Would one, say, maybe be looked at sooner rather than the other one? Absolutely. We have a process to prioritize claims. So, for instance, if a veteran has a terminal illness or a financial hardship or is homeless over the age of 85, as well as certain other conditions, we move those claims to the top of the list for priority claims processing. We want to make sure that veterans who are in dire need of this support and the benefits that they've earned get them as quickly as possible based on the individual circumstances. And one other question that you might have implied earlier, just to be accurate, VA mentions that it serves X number of veterans in a given year, and there are so many veterans in the United States. These are known numbers. Has this increased the total population that you're serving? That is, people came in because of the PACT Act that might not have been in the roles for VA ahead of this? 
We're beginning to see more veterans who are pursuing VA benefits and health care that have not previously. And part of the reason we are actively trying to get the word out about the PACT Act is to reach more veterans who are not connected to VA. Either they uh, have never wanted to apply or they applied and were previously denied. Maybe they heard a bad story. And so we are actively trying to get the word out let veterans know about these incredible benefits in healthcare and and encourage them to apply. And we want to either earn veterans' trust or re-earn it so that we can care for them as well as they've cared for this country. And a final question, are PACT Act benefits available to those that are less than honorable discharge but above the level of dishonorable? Yeah, we have a process to review specific discharge conditions, and so eligibility depends on a variety of conditions. So if you've got questions about that, you can work with a local veteran service organization, or you can call us at 1-800-MY-VA-411 to ask any questions and pursue your individual case. All right. Josh Jacobs is the Undersecretary for Benefits at the Veterans Affairs Department. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks very much, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, Congress has gone until next week, but the budget questions drone on. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Budget talks in Congress are in suspended animation this week because of the 4th of July recess. When members return, they'll have only three weeks until the August recess. Here with a recap of the sticking points, WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And so, give us the latest on what's going on here. Well, the animation will begin very soon, and Congress is only going to have three weeks to make significant progress in the appropriations process before they head out again for the August recess, of course. And there's really more urgency this time around than there often is during the summer months because of the debt ceiling legislation that's trying for regular order. The Senate Appropriations Committee, led for the first time by two women, Washington Democrat Patty Murray and Maine Republican Susan Collins, recently conducted the first full committee markup by that panel in two years, believe it or not. And the next steps will include debating all of those 12 annual government spending bills and then moving on to negotiate them with the House. And remember, if Congress does not pass all of these bills by January 1st, then the debt limit bill kicks in and there's a 1% across the board spending cut until Congress approves all these funding measures. This timing then becomes crucial because after August... They've got the month, they're here the month of September, but there's a holiday in September more than one holiday day. Right. So they're really rushing to try to get some of this done. And the Senate Appropriations Committee did make some progress recently. Earlier this month, they approved military construction, VA funding, agriculture, FDA appropriations bills. But to show you where they have to get to the final point where they're actually going to get this all approved by the House and the Senate, just to give you a few examples of how far apart the House and the Senate are, here's a few numbers. Uh, in the commerce justice science area, senators proposed nearly $70 billion for commerce, justice, NASA, and that's a decrease from $84 billion in current funding. Meanwhile, House Republicans proposed just under $59 billion. Another area 
area of labor and health and human services, education. The Senate spending level is about $195 billion. House Republicans proposing about $50 billion less than that. So these are huge numbers that they're going to have to somehow get together on. And right now it looks like the House Republicans, as you might imagine, are going to keep pushing hard, trying to utilize leverage to try to get some of these numbers down. But that's why we've talked about in the past where there could be this clash that eventually could lead to a government shutdown. Yeah, $50 billion delta, $195 billion versus $145 for this labor HHS education complex. That is a wide gap. The question becomes, who's going to give on each way to get somewhere toward the middle, if it's even possible? Right. And of course, you have that hard right side of the Republican conference, the House Freedom Caucus. They are all talking about the fact that they are not going to budge on a lot of these numbers. Of course, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy will have to do a lot of negotiating and and trying to balance the interests of his far right part of the conference, as well as with the moderates who just want to get some kind of agreement done. I think it's interesting to have learned over the last few weeks that no matter whether lawmakers are conservative, moderate, Democrat, Republican, there seems to be a resignation that we may be headed for another continuing resolution, even after all this talk about getting to regular order and getting all these appropriations bills. uh, A lot of people just don't see how, given that time frame in September, as you mentioned with that, also with another break built in there, that they're going to be able to meet this October 1st deadline and get it all done before the start of the new fiscal year. Right. Right. And if they want to avoid a government lapse in funding, then they could have the continuing resolution go for the whole year. Right. Potentially they could. And then and then you move up to that January 1st deadline. And even though some people on the appropriations committees have said, well, effectively, once this one percent across the board cut goes into effect, it really won't take place for a few months. Nonetheless, that's a that's a hard deadline in that legislation, and that's really something that they're going to have to uh, reconcile as they get through these next few months. We're speaking with Mitchell Miller. He's WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent. And on the defense side, they're a little closer, though, right? They are. Actually, the House uh, has proposed more money, whereas the cuts are really big in a lot of the other areas that we just mentioned. So they are very close with the House and Senate on a Defense Appropriations Committee. I think what we will see also is more of a move to get more uh, funding from the Senate side. You have people like... Uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell still pressing to provide assistance to Ukraine. He devoted several days in a row earlier this month in his floor speeches to talking about Ukraine, about the war effort and effort to get allies to pay their share as well. So I think that while you know we have a lot of differences in a variety of areas, I think that's one area where eventually lawmakers are going to be able to get close together on that issue. And getting back to the civilian side, some of the rhetoric is a little bit heated. I mean, there's talk, again, among some of the House super conservatives about defunding justice in the FBI. It sounds like defunding the police in some sense, and that's not what you would expect them to say. Right. This is really interesting. It's kind of a flip of everything that happened before, right? Before, Democrats were criticized by Republicans for talking about defunding the police. Now, Democrats are criticizing Republicans for their talk of defunding the Justice Department and the FBI. Now, a lot of that obviously is heated rhetoric, but there are some 
real proposals there from the uh, conservatives among the Republicans about cutting the Justice Department or, or, and even on the Senate side, holding up some of the nominations uh, in connection with uh, the president's Justice Department nominees. And the FBI has come under a lot of heat, as you know, in connection with a whole variety of issues that uh, a lot of Republicans have grievances with. I do think that this will primarily be a lot of the rhetoric that tends to float around Washington. I don't see major cuts coming in the Justice Department or the FBI. I think on the Senate side, they're going to get a lot of pushback uh, from Republicans and Democrats, frankly. But nonetheless, this is going to be something that is going to continually get sand in the gears as they try to reach agreements on so many of these spending issues. And of course, there's a couple of authorization issues, too, coming up. We've got the NDAA, which is moving apace, it seems to be, and then that big FAA authorization. Right. The NDAA, uh, that's one of the bright spots, as you know, within the congressional appropriations process. Uh, It does look like it's on track to, again, for more than six decades, get the approval that it needs. Uh, Senator Tim Kaine, the the Virginia senator on the Armed Services Committee, has continually talked to me about his optimism that things are going to move ahead a pace on that. And then the FAA reauthorization markup, that is a little bit different. You know, we talked recently about the fact that it kind of did not come in on the glide path, forgive me on that, that they had hoped, and that there is, it's kind of in a holding pattern right now because there's some disagreements on a variety of spending issues. Uh, among them, of course, those additional slots or flights at Reagan National Airport, opposition there from Virginia and Maryland. And then also there's been talk during this holiday period because of all the storms and everything that often hold up people when they're traveling during this holiday period, uh, there's still consideration of trying to get more people hired within the whole FAA framework, if you will, including not only just TSA, but uh, a lot of some lawmakers point out that there aren't enough air traffic controllers, that there's not enough staffing at some of these airports as they try to get through a lot of these complicated issues during these summer storms. So a lot of things that need to happen there with the FAA. And of course, lawmakers have a big interest in that because members of Congress are among those who fly the most of anybody across the country. Yeah, so the FAA bill seems to be in the quagmire that is mirrored by the airport situation over the past number of weeks when everything is frozen solid. Golly. Just a final question. What's it like on Capitol Hill these days in terms of visitor access and so on? It's really interesting. The amount of visitor access since it was really essentially reopened earlier this year is something that I haven't seen in several years. I mean, we have seen more visitors on Capitol Hill over the last several weeks than I have ever seen. And it's really great to see. You see huge numbers of kids and classes coming from all across the country, all kinds of special interest groups. You see a lot more lobbyists, frankly, moving around the hill and a lot of people heading to meetings and going on. And so it does seem after uh, a pretty long period where things were not very normal here at the Capitol, that things are moving back into that pace that you normally see with a lot of visitors coming in, a lot of people stopping you and asking you questions like, where is the Capitol Visitor Center? Where's the Washington Monument? Although the other day we could barely see the Washington Monument because of the air quality. But nonetheless, it's really nice to see uh, the U.S. Capitol complex coming back the way it has been. Well, maybe they think they'll see somebody. It'll be like the horror chamber at the Wax Museum. (laughs) Right. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. As always, thanks so much. You bet. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. 
to understand computing requirements for the National Institutes of Health, you need to have a sense of NIH's scale. Each of its 27 semi-independent institutes and centers focuses research on a different disease. Five of every six of its $45 billion in appropriations funds grants. Grants go to some 2,500 research organizations representing 300,000 individuals. NIH networks move tens of petabytes of data every day. According to Nick Weber, the high level of telework in recent years only sped up NIH's extensive work in cloud computing. Weber is the acting director of the Office of Scientific Computing Services with NIH's Center for Information Technology. He spoke with me during the Federal News Network's recent cloud exchange. I lead a program called the uh, Strides Initiative. It's uh, the Science and Technology Research Infrastructure for Discovery, Experimentation, and Sustainability. Say that and congratulations, you know it by heart. And I do. But we say we're making strides in getting researchers the tools and technologies that they need to accelerate research outcomes and to accelerate discovery. And so we had established, kind of leading up to uh, the pandemic and then throughout, central cloud uh, environments or platforms for all of NIH to use. So I come from the Center for Information Technology. It's a central um, kind of uh, IT organization, predominantly serving uh, the other institutes and centers. Uh, Our mission is a little different, which I'll get back to uh, within Strides, Uh, but we establish these enterprise platforms for the rest of NIH to use. And typically in a federated environment like NIH, there's different uh, institutes that have moved far ahead and are leaning forward and wanting to do uh, innovative things. There are others that may be lagging behind. And fortunately, with uh, us being able to have these cloud environments, we're able to bring you know, each of the ICs, the institutes and centers at NIH, uh, into these environments and get the benefit of not doing something 27 times over, which NIH you know, sometimes uh, in the past would, would you know, have to do. So uh, we can do a single you know, authentication layer. Um, we can do a single network connection uh, to the cloud. Um, we can do you know, kind of standard cybersecurity controls to make sure that data are protected and all of those sorts of things um, to speed the overall adoption across the entire uh, NIH to use these tools and technologies. And just a question I want to uh, branch off into for a moment. There is a Center for Information Technology at NIH, but you are the scientific computing services. Correct. Which implies there is a distinction in the requirements for scientific computing, solving algorithms, putting research data across what it is that a scientist might be trying to solve for, versus business computing, right. payroll personnel, all those things, making sure the monkeys are fed, you know. Correct, yes. So, you know, we have all the administrative and business systems, and we have a core IT organization that has, you know, a networking component and a, and a help desk and all of those things that, that organizations have. Uh, but we also have an Office of Scientific Computing Services, which I am um, currently the acting director for, that includes cloud, purposefully includes cloud, uh, includes our high-performance computing environment uh, called BioWolf for um, NIH. And it also includes a scientific application development team uh, to build new tools and databases and other things for researchers to use. And the kind of paradigms for standard business computing, as you said, to compared to um, scientific computing are often quite different. Scientific computing is bursty, meaning that the scientific process has its peaks and its valleys. You're generating data, then you're analyzing, then you're publishing on it. Uh, and you may need to do a lot of you know, computationally heavy analyses but for a short period of time. And so, you know, that's where both the high-performance computing environment comes in and the cloud comes in uh, because we provide tools to researchers who are at these 27 institutes and centers uh, that are all doing, you know, these 
experiments and, and needing you know, more and more computational power for the data intensive research that you know, takes place these days uh, and try to provide complementary capabilities that are different than your standard business applications, that are different from your standard you know, ways of you know, doing IT to have to run an organization. Sure. These are specialized um, and you know, really are meant to uh, move or process terabytes or even petabytes uh, of data. And I like to say that you know, for people who don't have a, an appreciation for the scale, uh, one petabyte of data uh, is the equivalent of uh, 20 million four-drawer filing cabinets full of text for one petabyte. Uh, and we're shifting around every day tens of petabytes across our network. Uh, mm-hmm. In the cloud, we have uh, close to 250 petabytes of data, research data that people are you know, computing on and accessing and storing and sharing. Um, so it's a much different scale of problem uh, for scientific computing with the need to share, whereas in, in the case of maybe other um, uh, technology applications, it's more of a need to protect mm-hmm. uh, the resources and the things that are internal to your organization. And scientific computing also has a lot of graphics, and that's a different style of computing, say, than business. I forget which is which, but you've got floating point and you've got integer intensive. Yes. And they don't necessarily play well together. Are the cloud, uh, commercial cloud environments able to accommodate both floating point and integer for the purposes of NIH? Yeah, so the way we look at it is um, typically you'll have you know, a CPU and maybe a, a GPU, a graphical processing unit. And a lot of our scientific um, imaging analysis requires or at least benefits from graphical processing units uh, that we have both in our high-performance computing environment and that you can you know, rent, quote-unquote, in the cloud uh, on demand to get access to those computational resources that you need. Um, and there's all sorts of imaging modalities that uh, are part of biomedical research, whether it's you know, CT scans or uh, other uh, medical imaging modalities, mm-hmm. uh, or um, uh, cryo-electron microscopy, where you're taking you know, pictures at a micro scale of frozen macromolecules uh, that you're you know, looking at under this high-powered microscope and taking many, many, many pictures of them uh, to try to understand structure and function uh, of you know, proteins or um, uh, genes or other things that uh, researchers are looking at. Sure, and just another question with respect to the specific needs of scientific computing, graphical computing, because these maybe many images are processed, taken over time, which is really you know a lot of computing intensivity, mm-hmm. but uh, also the question of high performance, which tended to be supercomputer, yep. which is a totally different architecture. Yet I'm hearing more and more that the cloud is able to either offer that or simulate it at a scale with which a traditional architecture can seem like high-performance computing, even though it's a commercial cloud. True? Correct. Years ago, it was not really true. Um, You would have the resources in the cloud uh, to be able to get as many as you want from a supercomputing or high-performance computing perspective, but you didn't have the the connections among them, the high-speed interconnects. You didn't have algorithms that could take advantage of distributed um, you know, virtual machines in the cloud that were not co-located, that didn't have you know, all of these uh, specialized you know, chip architectures and other things associated with them. Uh, but that's changing. Um, so I think the cloud service providers have you know, listened and understood that there are key needs. And you know, there's, there's not uh, a for- forever situation where we're going to continue to invest in data centers or continue to build out additional infrastructure. Um, and we need to be able to have the cloud as an alternative. Uh, it's not going to be a replacement. We have very important use cases and very important you know, uh, computational machinery at NIH and other locations uh, that people love and, and use heavily. Uh, but this is you know, kind of either an opportunity to 
burst, for example. So if you're uh, the, the waiting time, the queue uh, to get in line to process a job on a supercomputer or a cluster is too long, uh, you can go and use uh, the cloud. Uh, if there are certain types of um, specialized services and artificial intelligence or machine learning that exist on the cloud that just rolled out that aren't in our local computing environment, you can use the cloud. Nick Weber, acting director of the Office of Scientific Computing Services with NIH's Center for Information Technology. Hear the full interview at federalnewsnetwork.com. Click on Cloud Exchange. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 